0: Together as a broken people who know that we are not good. But God, we know that you have made all things good, and through your cross, where you shed your blood for us, you've taken what is dark and made it into light. God, let us revel in your glory this morning. For it's your name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. As you are being seated, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 10, that's where we're going to be uh, starting out today, so uh, jump over to Acts chapter 10. We'll roll into that in just a minute. Uh, it is great to see you guys. You sound awesome as you uh, worship and celebrate and sing this morning, and so uh, thankful for, uh, for the chance we get just to sing God's praises. And, uh, as a way of kind of introducing the message this morning, I don't know if anyone here was ever part of a, uh, a club or a secret society as a little kid. Any, any chance you were part of something that was cool, like a club at school or something like that? Just you and your buddies? Uh, maybe not. That was maybe just me. I don't know. Um, we had a, this kind of boys club that was going on on our playground at school. And so, uh, you know, we, we had this whole thing going on where it was really select, only a certain few people could kind of be in the club and we had our secret handshake and, and which was kind of this cool high five and jump and kick and stuff. And so it was really awesome. Um, but that was just kind of our way of getting to know And Basically what it meant to be in our club was we got to choose who got to play basketball with us on the playground. And so, uh, that was our way of just kind of being like in control of who could get on the court and play. And, um, Anybody else, we kind of chased off or ran away, and so that's just kind of our deal. Um, Well, recently we found out that our son was in a a, a club at his school um, called the Rocky Top Club, which is the coolest name ever for a club, and so if you're a Tennessee fan, that's a good thing for you, Um, and everyone was allowed to be part of the club. Like This wasn't one of those isolation clubs. Everybody was allowed to be a part of this because the kids that kind of started it, their parents found out, and one of the stipulations their parents gave them was, listen, Clubs can be exclusive and isolationist, so everybody needs to be able to be in the club. This is not going to be one of those things like if you're going to have a Rocky Top Club, everybody can be a part of it. And so everybody was. It was all cool until somehow uh, my son made one of the other boys jealous of this relationship that was going on within the club between some buddies. And all of a sudden, one of the other guys who got jealous of the friendship started finding ways to isolate my son from the club. He was no longer part of the Rocky Top Club. So he comes home and he's all distraught and crying and sad and everything. He's, a, he's in first grade, by the way. He's not like, this would be bad if he was in high school and y'all were like, oh, that is terrible. Um, he's a first grader. And so this was devastatingly. I thought I should clear that up for those of you who don't know my family. Um, he's a first grader. And, uh, and so uh, he comes home, though, and he's got this whole demeanor. He's brokenhearted. He's just sad about this whole club deal. And, and so, at, you know, we're good parents. So we start calling other parents and tattling on their kids uh, about what was going on. Your kid's not letting my kid be a deal. What's going on? What's part of the club? And so uh, my wife made some phone calls and found out what was going on, and, and eventually it all got straightened out, and he was welcomed kind of back into the club, uh, and so that whole situation got resolved because uh, some parents stood up and said, listen, this is going to be something that takes place. Everybody gets to be in. Now, why am I telling you that story? Well, it's because we're going to see something sadly similar take place in Scripture today. As we read in Acts chapter 10 and walk through a couple of chapters together here this morning, we're going to start seeing that as the church grows, there are some tensions that rise. And that just because God says the gospel is for everyone, that sometimes as people, we don't always have that same feeling that the gospel is for everyone. And so we're going to take a look at some things today that take place in Acts chapter 10. There's always been animosity that's existed between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and for those of you who don't know the distinction, when, distinction, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. So unless you're in the room today and you have a Jewish history, background, family, culture, you're Gentile. Okay? Uh, and so there's always been this animosity, this separation between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, but when the church started forming, the question was, okay, how is this all going to go? When Jews and Gentiles start kind of coming together, what are we going to see? And initially, the gospel was proclaimed to Jews in Jewish territories. The first believers in Jesus for salvation, through, by grace through faith, were Jewish people. The gospel was proclaimed in Jerusalem. And then after persecution broke out in Jerusalem, the gospel started spreading to Samaria and to Judea. But those are still Gentile or Jewish areas. So the gospel is primarily reaching Jewish people. But today what we're going to see is that a new way of spreading the gospel is going to start coming about. And so there's a centurion in Acts chapter 10. And I'm just going to overcap these first 23 verses so we don't read them all. But I want to overcap this for you uh, and kind of tell you the story. There's a, a centurion named Cornelius who lives in a place called Caesarea. Caesarea is a coastal town uh, in, in uh, Israel. And Caesarea is a place that, that uh, the Romans had one of their larger colonies. And so there's a map that's on the screen behind you, and you can kind of see where Caesarea is if you have really good eyesight. It's about in the middle of, uh, of the map there on the very far coast on the Mediterranean Sea is Caesarea. And so as he lives in Caesarea, he has, uh, he, the Bible describes Cornelius as being a God-fearing man uh, who is generous to the poor. And he and his whole family are fearful of God. They have a reverence and respect for God. As Cornelius is praying one day, an angel comes to Cornelius. God sends an angel, and the angel says, Cornelius, you need to send to Joppa, which is about 30 miles south of Caesarea. Send to Joppa, and there's a man there named Peter. Peter is a believer in Jesus, and you need to invite him to come to your home. And so Cornelius does this. He sends three of his top soldiers Uh, He is a centurion in the Italian regiment, so he sends three of his top soldiers or aides to go to Joppa and get Peter. And as he does that, Peter is living in Joppa with a man named Simon the Tanner. Uh, And the, the angel had told Cornelius, he lives in a place with Simon the Tanner by the sea. So go by the sea to the home of Simon the Tanner. Somebody said that he lived in a hut. It would be Joppa the hut. Uh, don't know if that reference connects for any of you or not. Some Star Trek stuff already there. Um, but uh, he said, you know, you need to go to Simon. Sorry, Dave, I ruined that one for you. Sorry, buddy. Um, you need to go to Joppa. You need to find Peter and have him come back with you. And so they do. As Peter is praying, the Bible says that at noon... Peter's praying on the top of a roof where he's staying. And as he prays, he becomes hungry. And so he has someone to to make a meal for him while he continues to pray. And as he has this meal made, the Bible says that Peter falls into a trance. And that God shows Peter a vision of a curtain being let down from heaven. And encompassed on the curtain are all kinds of animals. Four-footed animals, lizards, reptiles, and birds. These are considered unclean animals in the Jewish culture a lot of these animals you could not eat uh, because it would make you ceremonially unclean to participate in worship at the temple. And so the Bible says that God shows Peter this vision of a curtain being let down and all of these animals on the curtain. And he says to Peter, Peter, get up and go and kill one of the animals and eat it. And Peter refuses to. He says, Lord, I've never done anything that would make me unclean. I'm not going to kill and eat an unclean animal. And God says, Don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And the Bible says that two different times he shows Peter this vision. He has the same conversation. Go kill and eat. No, I can't do that. That makes me unclean. Don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. Don't say something is impure if I've said it's pure. And about the time that Peter is having this dream, he wakes up from the dream and he realizes that there is a knock at the door downstairs. And the angel speaks to Peter and says, Peter, there's a Gentile regiment that's here. Don't be afraid to go with them. That's all the instruction he gets. There's some Gentiles downstairs. Don't be afraid to go with them wherever they go. And so Peter goes downstairs. Sure enough, there are Gentile soldiers there at the door of Simon the Tanner. And Peter comes down and says, what is it that you need? They say, our master is a God-fearing man. He's generous and he is inviting you to come to, to our home to his home, and to share with him about God. So the Bible says that Simon takes God's cue, he goes with them, and about six other believers in Christ go with him from Joppa to Caesarea. So they start this 30-mile journey. Now let's pick up um, and let's go through a little bit of the the story as Peter shows up in Caesarea. So as Peter's thinking about this, we're going to hit in verse uh, 23. The second part of verse 23. Actually, before we do that, I want to show you one other picture. This is an artist's rendering of what Caesarea would have looked like during Peter's time. Uh, and so you can see how beautiful it was right on the sea, and there's a, a wall that extends out into the water. Go ahead and show a picture now, Nelson. This is what it looks like today. The wall is partially still into the water, but mostly gone. It's a, a lot more barren than it would have been uh, during Peter's time. But it was a beautiful sea, uh, sea town right on the coast of the Mediterranean. Gorgeous location. And so as Peter goes there, here's what begins to take place in in verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius has everybody come to his house. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. And suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but He accepts from every nation the one who fears Him, and does what is right. So as Peter goes to visit Simon, or Cornelius, excuse me, as he goes to visit him, he doesn't know why he's going. He says, tell me, why have you called for me? And so Cornelius just says, I'm a believer in God, and he told me to call for you, but that's about the extent of how far things go from my relationship with God. And so Peter says, look, everyone matters to God. That's the core theme of what we see here in verse 34. Peter says this to him, the Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. He accepts every nation, from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. See, Peter's mentality as a Jewish believer would have been that the gospel was for Jewish people. And yet when he comes to the home of an Italian regiment centurion, he has to rectify this in his mind that God is doing something even in the lives of Gentiles. And so Peter says, God gave me this vision to show me that no one is unclean, that God is considered to be clean. And so here's the takeaway. There's no outline, fill in the blanks on your notes today, but if you just want to write some things down, just write this down. Everyone matters to God. That's the key takeaway. Everyone matters to God. And so if everyone matters to God and we're not to show favoritism, then we have to ask ourselves, Is this the approach that we take to evangelism and to discipleship? Does everyone matter to God in our hearts, in our minds? Does everyone matter to God? Or are there people that we've written off? I mean, are there people that we've said, no, that person doesn't matter to God? Their background excludes them from God. Their behavior excludes them from God. What they engage in excludes them from God. Are there people we've written off? Are there nations we've decided not to go to with the gospel? I'm so excited about our mission team that's been in Nicaragua this past week sharing the gospel. It's been incredible to, to hear some stories that they've had about their trip down there. But as we see them that's a place that a lot of people go, and that's great. The gospel needs to go to Nicaragua. The gospel needs to go to South America, to Central America. It needs to go to uh, the Caribbean. It needs to go to uh, all of these nations. But when we start thinking about the gospel going to the nations, do we consider ever saying, what if we took a mission trip to Afghanistan? Has God called us to go to Iraq? How do we feel about going to Syria with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if everyone matters to God, then we cannot sit in our churches and say the gospel is only for certain people, peace-loving people, countries where there's no animosity, where war's not going on, where people are not killing Christians. Let's keep the gospel to people who like Christianity, who will accept Christianity, who aren't trying to persecute Christians. Let's make sure that the gospel stays in these areas. Let's exclude an entire nation of people who disagree with us. So that they don't get the gospel. Is that how we think? Is that how we feel? Because here's what Peter says. Everyone matters to God. I can see that God does not show favoritism. But he accepts from every nation. The one who fears him and does what is right. And so we have to consider that. For us to clearly understand the message Peter received from God. That everyone matters to him. We cannot call anyone unclean or impure that God calls clean. That's not our place to make that judgment. We should go to all of the nations. So Peter begins to share with this man and his family. And you remember how Luke described Cornelius in verse 2. He says, he and all of his family were devout and God-fearing, but they hadn't connected the dots. So they're devout. They're God-fearing, but they haven't connected the dots of Jesus and how Jesus fits into the picture. And so Peter starts doing that for them. Look at verse 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under his power of the devil, who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. So Peter starts saying, you've heard the stories of Jesus. I mean, Jesus' story was well known throughout all of Israel. He traveled all over the nation of Israel during his ministry. And so as a centurion, Cornelius would have had knowledge about Jesus' ministry because I imagine that there were always groups of people where Jesus would go that were saying, hey, keep an eye on this, this movement that's going on, this thing that's happening. Make sure nothing crazy goes home goes on in your region. If something breaks out here, you need to be aware of it. I'm sure that the communication to the Roman centurions was fairly knowledgeable. They were fairly knowledgeable about Jesus and his ministry. And so he says, you know all of these things. In verse 39, we are witnesses of everything he did in this country of the Jews, And so as Peter starts explaining this, he starts connecting these dots. And he says to them in in verses 39 through 43, that last part we just read, that God has appointed Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. That all of the prophets have spoken about him. And that everyone who believes in him should receive forgiveness through his name. Now, catch this, because this is where things start to get interesting. When Peter starts to proclaim these things, you have to start coming to an understanding yourself of what Peter's saying. That God has made this Jesus who died on a cross and was raised from the dead to be the judge of all mankind. In other words, if Jesus alone is the judge of mankind, you have to make things right with the judge. You don't have to make things right with anybody else. No one else has to agree or understand exactly where you are in your spiritual journey, but you need to know that you are right with Jesus in your relationship with him. You need to make things right with the judge of all mankind. God has appointed Jesus to be the judge of all mankind. And you need to be in that relationship with Him. He is calling you to Himself for salvation. And He says, I'm the only one that gets to judge your eternal place. And so you need to make sure you have your relationship with Jesus right. So this morning I would challenge you to think for yourself, where is your relationship with Jesus and he tells Cornelius he's the judge of all mankind, but he says, Cornelius, he's also the one that the prophets all spoke about. All of the prophets looked forward to Jesus. In other words, when you go back and read Scripture, when you read the Old Testament, that all of the prophets were looking forward from the past as we see it, from the past. They were looking forward to Jesus. And they were prophesying about him. And Peter says, He is the embodiment of everything that the prophets wrote about. Jesus is it. He's the one that the prophets mentioned, that the prophets wrote about, that they proclaimed there was a Messiah coming for the people. And Jesus is it. Jesus is the Messiah. He's not just judge where he's holding a gavel and proclaiming you to be guilty or innocent. He's also Messiah. He's the Savior of your soul. He is the lover of mankind. He is the one that everything in history, past, has looked forward to. To see you where you are and to make a way for you to be connected with God through Jesus. And so we see this as Peter starts to say all of these things. And he says this, last thing, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And I love this because when you start thinking about it and you ask yourself this question, what does it take to become a Christian? it takes belief. What does it take for you to become a Christian? It takes belief. Belief in what? Belief that Jesus is the Son of God, that He has forgiven you of your sins, and that He has invited you into a relationship with the Father. If you simply believe, the Bible says that you have a relationship with Jesus. Now, later in the New Testament, Paul is going to take this just a little step further, and he's going to say that it takes unashamed belief, that you don't just believe and keep it to yourself and kind of go, I believe in Jesus, I just don't want anybody to know about it. He says, I want there to be unashamed belief. So Paul writes, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you'll be saved. It's still belief. This is not a works-based salvation like you're only saved if you tell people the gospel. He's saying it's unashamed belief. Don't just believe it. Tell people you believe it. Because it's with your mouth that you confess that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you'll be saved. So you come to Jesus through that means. And Jesus echoes this same idea in Luke chapter 9. He says this, Luke chapter 9 verse 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in the glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Jesus says, listen, if if you're not willing to be bold enough to proclaim your belief in me on this earth, then I won't stand in front of my Father and proclaim that you've had a relationship with me. If you're you're ashamed of me here, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. But anyone who is unashamed of me here, I will welcome you freely into my family. And so there is an unashamed belief that we have that brings us to salvation. Now, in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, this is where things start to get really interesting in the story because it says this, while Peter was still speaking these words, as he was proclaiming the gospel, he doesn't even get to the end of his message, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, who had come with Peter, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. So this is amazing because they this violates everything they knew to be true about a relationship with God. That a relationship with God for the Jewish people was God's promise for them. God had a covenant relationship with the Jewish people. You'll be my people and I'll be your God. And so they thought God is only for the Jews. They missed the idea that God was for all people. And so as Peter proclaims this and as he's teaching them, something fascinating happens. The Holy Spirit is poured out on these Gentiles. And it's amazing. The believers who are Jewish, I love how it says the circumcised believers. The Jewish believers are there. And they go, they see this happen. Peter, in the middle of his message, I mean, if you could just imagine, like in the middle of me preaching today, some of y'all just started going, that's it, don't even, just stop. Let's just, I just want to invite Jesus into my life right now. That would be cool. We can just stop right now, okay? That's what happens here. The Spirit of God is poured out on these believers. And here's what's interesting is they are start to see barriers broken. First, the gospel had broken barriers between Hellenistic Jews and um, Hebraic Jews. Then the gospel had been received by Samaritans. Remember last week as we talked about the fact that as persecution took place, that they started going into Judea and Samaria. Why was it important that they go to Samaria, the Jews... Hated the Samaritans. They were an unclean race of people. Half Jew, half Gentile. They were seen to be repulsive to the Jewish people. And yet the gospel went to the Samaritans. And so the gospel had broken down walls between Hebraic Jew and Hellenistic Jew, between Samaritans and Jews. And now we start to see that the Gentiles are receiving the gospel. The gospel is breaking down every barrier imaginable. And what we find from this is that everyone matters to God. Everyone. And Peter's blown away by this. The Jewish believers are blown away by this. Everyone matters to God. The Gentiles are even experiencing the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as it goes on, it says that the gift of the Holy Spirit, as it came on these people, that they began to speak in tongues. And you go, okay, so... There are people with theological beliefs out there who have kind of said it is imperative that if you are going to be a believer that you have to have a sign of your belief in Jesus and the speaking tongues is that sign. So is that what's going on here? No, that's not what's going on here. It is not imperative that you speak in tongues in order to be a believer in Jesus. We don't put expectations on people to say, well, you're not truly a believer unless you've had this experience where you've spoken in tongues, you've communicated in the language that you don't speak. You just started doing that because it was a gift of the Holy Spirit. That takes place here. It's not a requirement for salvation. Nowhere in Scripture does it paint that picture. In so many other places in Scripture, when people accept God and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, there is no external sign like this. There's just the belief that they say, I want to believe in Jesus. Can I be baptized? Yes, let's be baptized. Let's do that. Let's move forward. Go and proclaim the gospel. But in this instance, why is it important? Why does Luke draw out this fact that they begin speaking in tongues? This is a sign not for the Gentile believers. This is a sign for the Jewish believers. This is there in order to help the Jewish believers connect and go. Do you remember Pentecost? that happened after Jesus died on the cross, came back to life, He was resurrected from the dead, ascended back to heaven... Forty days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish feast in Jerusalem, the disciples are waiting in an upper room, locked into a room, and the Bible says that the Holy Spirit was poured out. And on the day of Pentecost, the disciples received the gift of the Holy Spirit, went down into Jerusalem, and began speaking in other languages so that all of the people in Jerusalem, maybe it was around a million people in Jerusalem, began hearing the gospel in their own languages. God replicates that for the Gentiles because the Jews can connect the dots and go, that's the same thing God did with us. When He poured out His Spirit on us, that's what happened. The Gentiles really are in Christ, because He did the same thing with them. We can point to these two things and go, God is replicating what He's doing, not for the Gentiles to show that they're believers, but so that the Jews will go, it's the same. The same God, the same Spirit, the same gift, it's all the same. The Gentiles are no different than we are. Everyone matters to God. They get the same gift we got. They get the same experience that we got. And so this connects all of the dots for the Jewish believers And all of these things are good news for us today too because we don't think of ourselves in terms of Jew and Gentile where we're separating ourselves in those two categories. But a lot of times what we do, the prevailing thought was that only Jews had access to God, but Jesus came to make God available to everyone. And so we can start going, okay, what's the breakdown in our cultures? We don't have Jew and Gentile, but sometimes we differentiate between black and white or Hispanic or Asian. And we start going, these are separations. The gospel's for everyone. We start rich and poor. Well, the rich, that's one distinction. The poor, that's all. We don't necessarily communicate with between those two groups. We keep them isolated. The gospel's for everyone. Democrat and Republican, look, we're all going to be in heaven together. Y'all can argue about things in politics there if you want to. I don't think that's going to happen. But look, we're going to be there together as believers on both sides of the table. We start to think about American and Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist. We start saying, look, the gospel is for everyone. Peter's helping us see that. He's helping point these things out. And what God is doing is incredible. But the truth is not not everybody feels that way. When you get into into chapter 11, if you remember the story I told you at the beginning about my son in the Rocky Top Club. Not everybody feels like the Jews and the Gentiles should be together and mixed in. So as Peter starts telling the story and other Jews start to hear, Peter, you went to a Gentile's home, that makes you unclean. What are you doing there? And Peter has to defend himself and he starts telling the story. Cornelius sent for me. I was praying on a roof. This curtain came down. Unclean animals. God told me to kill and eat. I did all this thing. He goes through the entire story. I went to Cornelius' house. I preached the gospel. The spirit fell. We saw it. It wasn't just me. There were other believers there too. They witnessed the same thing, and they started to tell this story, and some Jews objected to it, but as Peter starts to tell the story in chapter 11, verse 17, he says, so if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. What an amazing thought. God would do this for everybody. Not just the Jewish people. For everybody. And so it starts playing out in the advance of the gospel to the Gentiles, which you're going to see through the next three chapters in chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. You're going to start to see the missionary spread of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas are going to go on missionary journey number one. They're going to take the gospel throughout all the known world. And they start sharing the faith with the Gentiles. And people are becoming Christians everywhere. And everything's good. Everybody's getting into the club. Who's in? Everybody's in. But then there are some Jews who are still part of the Pharisee background. They're believers in Christ, but they've got this Pharisaic heart. And the Bible says that because of them being Pharisees, they were connected to the law, and they started believing that the Gentiles who were converted to Christianity needed to also be converted to Judaism. It's great that you've come into faith in Christ, but you also have to obey the law of Moses. So now we're going to start putting requirements and standards on people. And as we get into chapter 14 you start to see arguments break out between Paul and Barnabas and these Pharisees. And in chapter 15, it says this, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, teaching the Christians, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, let me just go ahead and make an observation here. That's going to put a real halt to church growth, especially among men. If you start requiring that in order to be a believer in Jesus, you have to have surgery, that's a difficult proclamation, right? Like, hey, welcome to Grace Fellowship Church. We're so glad you're here. We hope one day you'll choose to join us in fellowship and be a member of our church. And when you do, we're going to cut off your right arm. That's part of what happens. We just all want to be one-armed people in our church. So major surgery for everybody. That way we can identify with you. We know you're serious about this whole thing. We're really going to make you get into this. You know, it's not going to be huge. It's going to be awesome. And so they start saying, hey, look, if you want to become Christian, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the Jewish law. There's this whole thing you've got to run through. Here's the hoops you have to jump through. And this is what happens. When organizations start to form, restrictions start getting put in place. And when restrictions start getting put in place, we start requiring things of people to keep people out. And that's not what the gospel's about. And so Paul comes back to Jerusalem. And he has what's known now as the Jewish Council or the Jerusalem Council. And basically what takes place in the Jerusalem Council is this, that Paul stands up before all of the apostles and he starts to tell them about what's going on. Hey, the Gentiles are coming into faith in Christ, but there are some Pharisaic Jews who are believers in Jesus, but they're expecting them to become Jewish, to follow the Jewish law. What are we going to do about this? And so this council takes place in chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. So after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that He accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to trust God or test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so Peter's argument is, listen guys, we're trying to put unfair stipulations on these guys. We want them to follow the law. And so let me illustrate this if I can, this way. The Jewish law we're going to use some Legos this morning. The Jewish law had ten commandments, right? So here's our ten commandments. Five of them related to what it meant to love God, five of them related to how it meant to treat other people. And so we have vertical commandments for how we deal with our relationship with God, we have horizontal commandments for how we deal with other people. There are ten. And yet, with those ten, we break them all the time. Don't covet what other people have. Broke that yesterday. Don't lie. That was like ten times this week. Don't commit adultery. Jesus came along and said if you lust after somebody, you've committed adultery. That That's a difficult one for me. We break these all the time. And so then Jesus comes along and Jesus says, let's just take, what's the most important commandment? Well, here you do. Here's what you do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love people as yourself. Jesus breathes it into two. Listen, if you'll just love God with everything you have and love and respect people, you'll do good in keeping the law. Let's just do those two things. Well, we don't even handle those really well, do we? We don't always love God the way we're supposed to. We sure don't love people the way we're supposed to. Jealous, envy, strife, animosity between brothers and sisters, arguing, hatred, discord, whatever it is. Now, after the Ten Commandments, here's what comes along. The Jews have 630 laws. So let's keep these. Not only are there 630 laws, there's commentary to go along with them to tell us how to obey the 630 laws. You get that all through Numbers, Leviticus, all the Old Testament stuff that helps you sleep at night. Here's all of the laws, dietary customs, all of these different things. And so Peter says, Listen, You guys are asking the Gentiles to to now become Christians and keep all of our laws? And then he, he asks, or he doesn't ask, he just says this. Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that we ourselves nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He basically says, guys, have we done this well? And they go, no, we really haven't followed the law all that well, and it's our law. I mean, we were raised with it. We've known it since we were little kids. We were taught it. He goes, how are you going to expect a Gentile who's never even heard of our dietary restrictions to follow these things? How do you expect them at age 30, 40, 50 to, to grab a hold of this stuff and say, oh, yeah, we'll start doing that now? Because let's don't put this on them. They've received the Holy Spirit. They believe in Jesus. Let's leave it at that. It takes belief, unashamed belief, to be in the church of Jesus, in the kingdom of God. Peter says, let's leave it at that. So James, Jesus' half-brother, stands up. He quotes from Amos chapter 9, and he says this, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. He's speaking of the Messiah. This is a quote from prophecy. That the rest of mankind may see the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. And so James stands up and says, listen, Amos predicted this. Even the Gentiles who bear my name, I'll come back and restore them. This gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. And so James makes one last astute observation. James says this. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Isn't that beautiful? Here's my observation, guys. It should not be difficult. Let's not make it hard for people to come to Jesus. Let's throw the doors open, and let's make it easy for people to walk in. And so for us, when we think about this, Here's some things we have to think through. Don't ask people to change who they are before coming to Jesus. Only Jesus can change people. If you start saying, man, I would love to invite you to church, but you swear a lot. I'm really afraid you're going to do that at church. So if you'll stop swearing, when you get that under control, I'll invite you to come to church with me. Don't expect that. Let's get comfortable with people who swear in our church. How about this one? Hey, your marriage is a wreck. I'd love to invite you to come to church and hear the, the good news of hope in Jesus, but why don't you fix your marriage first? Get that whole thing all put back together, and then come back to Jesus. Come to church with me. What well, you'll find about Jesus, and He'll help you. Wait, he, he won't help you because you've already done the work. He's saying, don't don't put those expectations on people. Let's get comfortable with people being here who have broken marriages, who have broken relationships. Man, I'd love to invite you to church, but your drug habit is just difficult for me to, to think you're going to be here and maybe high. You might be drunk when you come to church. Hey, guys, let's get comfortable with people who are drunk or high being in these chairs around us, being in our community groups. Man, it would be awesome if you came to my church, but you're living in a homosexual relationship, and I just don't think that it's appropriate for you to come to, to church because, you know, Jesus hates gay people. I'm sorry, where is that? How about let's get comfortable with the idea that people who are living in a homosexual relationship might sit in our church. And that we would love them and respond with grace to them. And that we would let Jesus and the Holy Spirit convict them of where they're living in sin. And by the way, it's not just homosexual people who are living in sin we got a lot of problems within our own church where it comes to sin and dealing with things. We don't talk about. Gluttony is not one we hold real high, but some of us will eat until we're stuffed today. There are some things that we just don't like to deal with. Pornography is the same as a sexual sin as homosexuality is. Did you know that? Do you know what the largest day of the week that pornography is viewed in the United States is? Sunday. Which means that a lot of Christians will go home today and plug up, turn on their computers, and they'll watch porn. Let's not make distinctions about people because we're all dealing with some sin in our lives. Let's love people and accept them and embrace them and let God make the change. Now, with that being said, let me make a statement to you here that I think is important. And if you want to write this down, you're welcome to. But we have to ask a question. Is the church a club for church people? Or is the church a place for sinners to be exposed to the grace and the love of Jesus? That's what we have to decide. That's what the Jews were dealing with when the Gentiles started coming into faith. Is Christianity a club for Jewish people? Or can anybody be in this thing? Is the church a place for church people? Or is the church a place for sinners to be exposed to the grace and the love of Jesus? Now, for those of you who may be uncomfortable by the last five minutes of things that I've said... Let me make a couple of statements. Number one is this, as we close, loving and accepting people does not mean we'll endorse or condone their lifestyle choices. Would we want people who are living in an openly homosexual relationship to be here? Absolutely, they're welcome here. Will we begin performing same-sex marriages and putting people who are practicing homosexuality in leadership positions in our church? No, we won't. We still have biblical standards that we live by and mandates that we believe. They would exclude them from doing that. But are they welcome here? Yes. Will we love them? Yes. Some of you may have issue with that. I'm sorry. But Jesus is for everybody. We need to be ready to welcome people in. Our role is to love them and point them to Jesus and let the Holy Spirit make changes in their lives. So here's how we're going to close. I want to read you one last statement from James. James writes a letter to the people who have these expectations put on them. And he writes this and says in verse 24, chapter 15, verse 24, We've heard that some went out from us and without our authorization, and they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm the word of mouth that we are writing. We want you to know this is not just a letter you're going to receive. We're going to send people with them to to make sure they can proclaim the truth. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. No laws, no Jewish customs. Thank God, no circumcision if you didn't want that. That wasn't going to be expected. He says, listen, you do these things. You abstain from food that's been sacrificed to an idol, that's been strangled, that has blood. Why is that important? What he's saying is basically this. As Jews and Gentiles come together, Jewish people have certain practices. Let's make sure we honor them. As Gentile believers, you have the freedom to eat that stuff if you want to. But if you sit down with a meal with a Jewish person, let's don't be a stumbling block to them. Respect and honor one another in the way you treat each other. And then the second thing is abstain from sexual immorality. That encompasses a lot of things. The Greek word there is pornea. We get our, our American word pornography from that word. Sexual immorality. is all types of sexual immorality. Not just homosexuality. We like to include that one. But it's extramarital affairs. It's looking at pornography. It's divorce. It's all of these things that are sexually immoral. And so he says, you abstain from those things. Watch out what you eat when you're fellowshipping with your believers who are Jewish, and don't be tied up sexually in ways that are outside of God's plan. Sex sex was used in the Roman culture and the Greek culture in their worship practices. He says, let's keep worship pure. Don't engage in that. Let's keep our relationship with God pure and our relationship with one another pure, and we'll do just fine. Farewell. Let's keep this easy. Who's in? Everybody's in. Everybody who believes in Jesus is in. It's that belief. He says there's no rules, there's no laws, there's no ex- external things you have to do, no hoops to jump through. Believe in Jesus. Be unashamed about it. And you're in. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, God, I'm so thankful for the things that we can learn from passages like this, and that as we see the gospel spread, that there is hope for us because you have not made this difficult. Salvation is by grace, your grace to us and our faith, belief in you. Thank you for making it simple. Let us keep this simple as well. Let us throw the doors of your church and your kingdom wide open and invite people in. Help us, God, to keep it simple, to make the gospel spread broad to every person, to every age, to every nation. God, let us not exclude anyone because of our own selfishness, because of our own things that are are keeping us from engaging with the world. But Let us take the gospel to everyone. And will you draw people to yourself for salvation? We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Thank you.